today we're going to give you a gift and you're actually going to be able to walk outside after the meeting and pick this gift up on your way out for all the moms that are here today. Uh, we have a gift. You know, Thursday was the National Day of Prayer. Today is Mother's Day and we're going to combine those two together. And I, this is really a, a series I've been feeling the urgency to do for the church for quite a while, actually. A re-envisioning of our prayer lives as a church. But today I want to feature moms today in this message because I think prayer is the most vital thing that you're ever going to do as a mom. It's the most important aspect of your ministry as a mother. Uh, It is the most challenging thing I believe you'll ever do as well. So this, this is what we're going to give you framed today. Uh, you can pick out as a variety of frames, a variety of ways that this is put, but it is intended to stir up your prayer life on a daily basis. And hopefully what we do today and actually in the next couple of weeks will help you with that. But S.D. Gordon wrote these words back in about 1902 or 3. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And mothers, I, I could not give you a more important piece of advice for the task that's before you that truly is bigger than life. It's bigger than your life. You feel the weight of it. It is both a joy and a burden. You will laugh hysterically and cry difficult tears in this task. And those of you who have been moms for 67 years or not even close to that, maybe for 67 days already know. Yeah, that's true. That's a true story. But, you know, it's hard. And and, any time any of us men have to take on some of the responsibilities of doing some of the mom duties, we get a fresh appreciation for what it means to daily be responsible for not only the tasks around the house, but for the lives that relate to you in a unique way. There are people in your life that have a unique relationship with you that is not duplicated anywhere else. No one, truly no one else can take your place. And so you have influence. And, you know, that's, that's a weighty issue for you to come to grips with. The unique influence. You know, there's, there's many people that come in and out of our lives that, that we kind of share common real estate with other people. When we traffic with them, we're like somebody else. But as a mother, nobody comes in and out of that category but you. It's a room with one person in it. And so that task, with all the challenges that it brings, uh, must be accompanied with something that's supernatural in God's economy for you. And so what I want to share with you today, I hope, will serve to further the ministry that God has given you to enable the ministry that God has given to you. I'm going to title this series, The Prayer Catalyst. Catalyst is something that brings about change. But let me give you a little bit of background before we get to this issue, because most of us, most of us would agree prayer, really praying, really being a person who involves their life in praying, Getting with God and praying in the way in which the Bible depicts prayer uh, might be well in saying, if you're a mom here, you're the only ones who can really say that this is true or not. 
that as difficult as mothering is, prayer is harder. I'm not sure that praying can be topped by almost any other activity for the Christian. And the reason why most of us could say, yeah, I guess that's got to be true, is the difficulty that we have in pulling it off. If you're new to the Christian life, you're kind of strolling into the different categories of how you live your life and you're relating to God and you've got something called prayer going on. And, and you know, there's that, there's that sort of honeymoon season where you don't know enough to know whether this is being done right. You know, it's like, I, I just pray. It's just kind of great. I don't, I don't know. Is it hard? Um, warning. You're going to go far enough to where you're going to begin to wrestle with all kinds of questions and challenges when it comes to prayer. And you're not alone in those moments. Now look at this thought in your outline from J.I. Packer. And, and I want to highlight the fact that it's J.I. Packer who is saying this, who would be probably the most renowned theologian and leader in, in theology in the past hundred years. He's an older fellow from England. He says, at the beginning of this book, he's just recently, or last couple of years, wrote a book called Praying. At the beginning of this book, we invite our readers to pause a moment to ask yourselves honestly how you got on in prayer this week. Or first thing this morning. You can tell he's an Englishman, right? How you got on? Our guess is that most of our readers are like us. We want to get things right, but we are more than a little embarrassed to admit how far-reaching are the problems we have in praying. It seems that struggle is the realistic word to describe the typical Christian experience of praying. And we are encouraged to note that when evangelical pietist and theologian Donald Blesch wrote on our topic, he titled his book, The Struggle of Prayer. In P.T. Forsyth's little book, about 100 years old now, The Soul of Prayer, the reality of struggle is central. So if prayer, in your experience, has been a challenge, you are not alone. You're not alone in this room. Not alone if you were in a room just with me. You're not alone with many who we'd have great respect for. Now, now, let me put this quote up up here to get a little perspective on prayer, the venture of prayer in many folks' lives. These would be some great prayers in history that will both inspire us as well as intimidate us. George Mueller, the great pastor and builder of orphanages in England a couple of centuries ago now, says, it says, George Mueller began each day with several hours of prayer imploring God to meet the practical needs of his orphanage. And in miraculous ways, God met the needs of these multiple orphanages that he had felt led by God. All he would do was just pray. He didn't go to people and seek for provision. He just simply went to God. It's an amazing story. Bishop Lancelot Andrews was an Anglican uh, pastor. He allotted five hours per day to prayer. And Charles Simeon rose at 4 a.m. to begin his four-hour regimen. Susanna Wesley a busy mother with no privacy. How many children she had? I want to say 17 or 17. Am I right with 17? Somebody else know that number? Um, That's that's a challenge for privacy. I'm I'm wondering how many diapers that poor woman changed in her lifetime. Well, you can fight it out with ladies over here who are saying 17, Bill. I think it was 17, actually. Susanna Wesley, a busy mother with no privacy, would sit in a rocking chair with an apron over her head praying for John and Charles and the rest of her brood. Martin Luther, the great reformer, 
who devoted two to three hours daily to prayer, said, we should do it as naturally as a shoemaker makes a shoe and a tailor makes a coat. Jonathan Edwards, great American revivalist in the 1700s, wrote of the sweet hours on the banks of the Hudson River, wrapped and swallowed up in God. Well, let's come a little bit farther down to earth here. According to Gallup polls, more Americans will pray this week than will exercise, drive a car, have sex, or go to work. Nine in ten of us pray regularly, and three out of four claim to pray every day. The author here of this book, a man named Philip Yancey, says, I interviewed ordinary people about prayer. Typically, the results went like this. Is prayer important to you? Oh, yes. How often do you pray? Every day. Approximately how long? Five minutes? Well, maybe seven Do you find prayer satisfying? Not really. Do you sense the presence of God when you pray? Occasionally, but not often. Many of those I talk to experience prayer more as a burden than as a pleasure. Why does prayer rank so high on surveys of theological importance and so low on surveys of actual satisfaction? What accounts for the disparity between Luther and Simeon on their knees for several hours and the modern prayer fidgeting in a chair after ten minutes? Everywhere I encountered the gap between prayer in theory and prayer in practice. In theory, prayer is the essential human act, a priceless point of contact with the God of the universe. In practice, prayer is often confusing and fraught with frustration. Right? Now, this is, this is our starting point here. Right? I'm not going to just jump into a message on prayer, but the reality is we've all been here before. And I was invited to share some thoughts at a meeting uh, that we had from some senior pastors in Florida and just talked about prayer lives. And, and one of the things that came to me is like, prayer life is sort of like flying in a paper, a paper airplane. You know, you pick it up and you throw it, and as soon as it leaves your hands, it begins to die. It's going to fly for a while, but it's, it's going to die at some point, and it's going to need to be picked up again and thrown again. And your prayer life is like that. Now, if you've been walking with God for any length of time, you know that's the truth. You go through times where your prayer life is flying, and you go through times where it's sitting on the ground and somewhere in between. And so we know this is the reality of prayer. It is a challenge. In your outline there, one more thought from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Again, these, these are not chumps. These are guys who have made a mark on Christianity. He says, of all the activities in which the Christian engages and which are part of the Christian life, there is surely none which causes so much perplexity and raises so many problems as the activity which we call prayer. So if that's the backdrop of this thing that we're calling prayer, as simple as prayer is, I mean, does it get much more simple? It's prayer, right? It's like, you know, the only thing more equal, or I guess I'd say with it, you know, prayer and reading the Bible. I mean, the the, the Christian life doesn't get any more basic than this. But what a challenge it is. I put this thought in your outline. Without question, prayer is held in high regard by many Christians, yet in low pursuit by most If prayer is a struggle, confusing, poorly understood, and unsatisfying, perplexing, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it is destined for neglect. How many things fit those categories of descriptions that you run toward on a regular basis? 
It's perplexing. It's difficult to struggle. Right? These things don't climb to the top of the list for us to where we're running toward these things. But here, here is the giant problem with this issue. The Christianity of the Bible has prayer as an essential. doesn't have it as an option. And yet, for the modern Christian, it's almost as though we have extracted prayer from the Christian life, and yet we're going to keep on trying to live the Christian life. See, the Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible can't comprehend how that could ever work correctly. See, much of what we try to do, I think, sometimes brings with it a unique challenge and difficulty because we are trying to live the Christian life with prayer having been neglected or extracted from it. And we've got all kinds of reasons, whether it's just been discouraging, perplexing, I've never understood, well, how can a sovereign God allow that? I mean, we've got all kinds of questions theologically, or the fact that we're just busy. Just busy people, all we sure meant to, and we just couldn't get to it. For whatever reason, there is this neglect taking place. Now, the question for us is, does it matter if we pray? Does it really matter? Does it matter how we pray? Is that an important issue to the Christian life? Well, I want to consider, that's why I want to consider this topic. I want to consider prayer as a catalyst. Right, now, for some of you, you would know this is, this is my desperate attempt at using my engineering training beyond just a degree that used to hang on the wall before Katrina came. So it involves sometimes really nerdy illustrations that really only the chemists and chemical engineers in the group are going to fully appreciate this morning. But I'll do my best to make it simple. And quite honestly, I'm actually going to violate the, the word catalyst here a little bit this morning. But most of you don't care, so I have liberty to do that. Catalyst, as defined by the dictionary, would be something that makes a change happen or brings about an event. That's what a catalyst is. Catalyst is something that makes a change happen or it brings about an event. Okay, now, if you're taking chemistry or you took chemistry and remember much about it, there are these, these things called catalysts. And you introduce them into a chemical reaction. And they bring about a change. Their presence causes the things that are there currently to begin to interact differently and forces them to take on a different state. So they, they become something different. Right? Let, me, let me give you a real common example. <clears throat> Water. Good old H2O. Right? Everybody knows. This is as deep as some of our chemistry goes, right? H2O. That's, that's a chemical equation, in case you didn't know that. Uh, Where did that come from? Well, you know, over here we have water, but before we had water, we just had hydrogen and oxygen gathered together into the same room, hanging out with each other. And that's all they were going to be doing was just hanging out with each other. Something was going to have to come along and help these two if they were ever going to become water. Now, technically, it's not a catalyst that does this. It's just the introduction of energy. But for this, energy and catalyst can operate in almost the same way. When you add heat... You add a spark to hydrogen and oxygen, they become something else. They become water. When you introduce the catalyst into the setting, these things become something different. If, if you had a, a bowl of hydrogen peroxide 
that hydrogen peroxide would just sit there as hydrogen peroxide unless you introduced a piece of iron into hydrogen peroxide, just dropped it in. All of a sudden, that thing would begin to bubble and go nuts. Well, what's happening there is that, hot, that iron is actually causing a change to take place to where now the separation of oxygen from the hydrogen is beginning to form water and oxygen. So you no longer have hydrogen peroxide. You now have water releasing oxygen in it. Well, what, what caused that to happen? Well, the introduction of iron into that setting. See, prayer acts as a catalyst. It takes things that simply exist in a state as they are, and when prayer gets injected into that situation, prayer brings about change. It's the way in which God intended it to be. Now, for us, the day we stop believing that will be the first day you don't find time to pray that day. Functionally, a lot of us have stopped believing that prayer has any influence over anything. We, we treat prayer like it's an option because we're not really sure that it does anything. You know, we, we didn't pray yesterday. And you know, the sun still rose and things still happened. And you know, maybe the kids still behave decently. And hey, I guess you can get by without praying. So the next day comes and the next day comes. Okay, but you know what we don't know here is we don't know what would be the situation had prayer been injected into these moments in certain ways. Right, moms... And your day is full with activity, teaching, leading, caring for your children, disciplining them. Right? There can be a, a mom answering the call to, to discipline. Right? Here's a chemical equation. Discipline plus instruction yields what? Well, it, it needs to be discipline plus instruction plus the prayer catalyst yields something. So it's not enough just that we discipline our kids. Moms, it's not enough that you instruct your children. Those things can be present in the room like hydrogen and oxygen, and you can maybe not end up with water. You get water by injecting a catalyst into the presence of those two things. There's an element where you're, you're training your children and have a vision for their lives, and you give them instruction, but what needs to be injected into that is prayer that brings something to those elements that brings about a change in their lives. Right, this is true, you know, whatever you want to say, moms, that you're doing. If you're bringing truth into their life and you're bringing love into their life and you're bringing encouragement into their life, okay, into that chemical setting where all those things are sitting in the room, like hydrogen and oxygen, needs to come the injection of prayer. Because that prayer brings about a change. It, it energizes those elements into their lives in a way that's different than if those elements are simply there in and of themselves. So what I want to do in the next couple of weeks here, and I want, this morning I want to focus us on moms in particular. But in the next couple of weeks, I want to address the issue of prayer being a catalyst. Prayer that first brings about changes in us today. Next week, we'll talk about how prayer actually changes things. And then the last thing we'll look at is, is how reactions take time. There's an element of prayer that takes time. And it's a very important element. Sometimes we don't learn that quickly enough in our prayer lives. Turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 in the New Testament. If you find the book of Hebrews, you're in the neighborhood. Take a right. 
James chapter 5. I must start reading in verse 13. James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Let me, let me stop here. We're going to go through this whole passage in just a moment. But into this passage, into this book, this is a, this is a rather definitive passage on prayer. There would be many, many passages on prayer but this is a rather definitive passage, I believe, on prayer. It's very instructive. There's, there's eight times in this very short passage that prayer is mentioned. Eight times in just this very brief moment. Nine if you include praise as an element of prayer, which I actually think you should. So really nine times that prayer is going to be highlighted in this very small passage. And it, and it begins with a survey of life. Where you have a variety of situations into which prayer is to be injected. It's like in whatever moment your life finds itself, prayer is to be present. You're to be praying, others to be praying for you. And the first one that gets highlighted is suffering. That's a broad, broad category, but it's probably a very important category. Alec Motyer says, The word for suffering is wider than the suffering of sickness. Jeremiah suffered opposition. Ezekiel, bereavement, Hosea, marital breakdown. It is any ill circumstance that may come upon us. Any trial, anything of which we or an onlooking friend might say, that's bad. <laughs> I, I love that deep theological conclusion right there. <laughs> Ooh, man, that's bad. <laughs> right? Whatever it is that fits that category... There's going to be realms in your life where, where it could be bereavement. It could be a relational issue. It could be a circumstance. It could be finances. All these categories fit into this broad umbrella of suffering. Is there any among you who are suffering? Okay, into that, inject. Be intentional about praying in that. And then he begins to broaden out. He says, not just suffering, but if you're cheerful. You've got something to sing about. Be praising God. Turn to God in the posture of prayer when everything's going good. So when it's going bad, pray. When it's going good, pray. If you're sick, pray. And call upon others to pray for you as well. If there's an issue of sin, confess that and seek out prayer. So in all the activities of our life, the Bible calls on us to pray. It's an every season endeavor. There's never a descriptive of life that we're not to be injecting prayer into it. Look at how the Bible presents this to us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, and several verses that just kind of present the commonness of prayer. Jesus says, but when you pray. There's a huge assumption there, isn't there? When you pray. Not if you pray, but when you pray. It's the assumption that you are praying. And this description he gives about being personal in prayer and in your own prayer closet with God. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. 
And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He goes on again. And when you pray, don't be as the hypocrites who pray out in public to be noticed. Right? When you pray, Romans 15, verse 30, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now listen, I'm not going to unpack all the theology, even in this whole series on this. But if you've been a Christian for very long, praying involves some theological challenges. If you you allow all the messages that you've ever heard to come with you into this morning, which is how we should read the Bible, there's teaching on God's providential activity, on God's sovereign purposes that, that clearly are portrayed in the Bible as from the foundations of the world, God has laid out a plan that you better believe that at the end of time, it will have happened exactly the way he said it would. Well, that right there is enough to mess up your prayer life, isn't it? And, and probably nobody in the New Testament explains that concept to us more clearly than the Apostle Paul. But yet it is the Apostle Paul who right here is saying, look, look if you get around to it, you know, you might hoist up a prayer, you know, for me. You know, I, don't, I don't even know that you really need to, see, because I mean, I know the purposes of God. They're going to come to pass. Listen, I just, you know, go back and review Romans uh, chapter 9 in particular, and I think you'll get it, you know. God's going to do what God's going to do. Is that how Paul sounds? Paul is a revelation of the sovereignty of God here, probably at a level that none of us have. He's been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about God's sovereign purposes that are coming to pass. And he's had to address it for three chapters in Romans. At least three chapters. You could probably bleed into others. And he doesn't walk away from a presentation, probably the biggest presentation on the sovereignty of God that's in the New Testament or in the whole Bible, and diminish the place of prayer. He urges people. He makes prayer and the support of others for him in prayer of primary importance. So if theologically somehow we, we get up in the day and we say, hey, God is sovereign, you know, kind of the Doris day of the Bible, whatever will be, will be, que sera, sera, God's going to be God. All you guys that got that, you're at least 50 or older. <laughs> Paul finishes his book, his letter to the Romans. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. This is not a casual endeavor. He is saying, put something on. Get it going on for me. I need it. Ephesians chapter 6, again, the Apostle Paul, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. In everything. Same thing James said. In suffering, in rejoicing, in sickness, in sin, in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So and the Bible can't be more clear 
Prayer is to be intentionally and aggressively injected into every season of our lives. Every moment of our lives has to have a giant dose, a striving dose of prayer involved in it. But why is that so hard to do? Isn't it just hard to do this? I mean, all of us, we've heard messages like this before. Apparently, it is easier said than done. I don't think there's anything harder in the Christian life than maintaining, developing, walking in a consistent prayer life. You have seasons here, it even says, in all things, in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. You know, it's hard in all circumstances. What if your circumstances are the suffering circumstances? Are the sickness circumstances that James talks about? Are the sin circumstances that James talks about. You know, how many of us are just really motivated to pray in those seasons? It's not easy to even want to pray in the moment of some of those seasons. And then when you add to that, you have great historical precedent for people to say, hey, prayer is a struggle. It's perplexing. It's a problem. All right, so I've got seasons that are difficult and I've got an issue here that's perplexing and challenging and sometimes hard to get your hands around. And how do I pray? How do I pray for that? I don't even know how to pray for that. And yet the Bible calls on us to make this important in every season of our lives. Vitally important. Now, prayer, uh, James is very kind to us. Go back to this passage here. And that not only does he exhort us to pray... But he feels the need to give us a reason to pray. He doesn't just say pray. End of the day, Christians, pray. He gives us a reason to pray. What's what's the reason for prayer? Therefore, look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James, why pray? Because prayer works. That's why. Really simple. Because prayer has power in it. Because prayer is a catalyst that changes things. When you inject prayer into something, you alter it. You affect it. You bring about powerful effect on it. The different translations for this verse. This verse is a little bit challenging to translate. You'll see it in a variety of passages in your different translations. ESV says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The NIV says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The effective prayer, the New American Standard says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. King James says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, availeth much. A bunch of stuff happens. Things take place when you pray. There's power in prayer. The Amplified Bible kind of picks up on some of the Greek nuances. It says, the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. There's something in prayer that God has designed prayer to contain in it, in the activity of prayer, that has enormous potential in it, an enormous power in it. Look at the way Meyer brings this out again. He says, this teaches us of the inherent, the inherent power 
of prayer. It has great power. The word ixus points to inherent strength, the strength which makes a, a person or a thing sufficient for the task. It's inherent. It's in it. It means potency, power waiting to be released. When we pray about something, the inherent power of prayer is released as an effective power which accomplishes its objective. Now, now I want to highlight something here because obviously God, by the Holy Spirit, is the source of all power in the universe. And it'd be wrong for us to locate power in the wrong place. But I've got to be honest when I deal with this passage. James does not say, God availeth much. Now, ultimately, prayer is reaching into God and availing much. But, but where James puts his emphasis in this passage, I've got to be fair to James here, is he puts the emphasis on prayer. This is the thing that avails much. It's prayer. Now, obviously, we know this is not the only Bible passage on prayer. So when I take all the other passages and bring them here, I realize that, you know, the prayer of the, of the, uh, the Muslim or the prayer of this person, you know, there's, there's qualifying factors here. God is the source of power. But James, for the Christian, says, listen, you need to realize what you put your hands on in prayer has incredible power, amazing power, inherent in the activity of prayer, is stored up by God, incredible power that does avail much. It accomplishes a lot. Douglas Moose says, Prayer, James wants to make clear, is a powerful weapon in the hands of even the humblest believer. It, it does not require a super saint to wield it effectively. I think that would be very, very important for all of us to realize. Right? James isn't conducting a seminary class for historic giants here. Right? Sometimes we read the Bible as though, yeah, well, this, this has got to be a real narrow passage that only a few could apply. James is speaking to garden variety, stumbling, bumbling people, you and me. And he's educating us about the incredible prayer and the power that it carries with it to touch and affect the world that we live in, no matter what circumstance you are in. He says prayer is this incredible catalyst that when it's injected into situations from suffering and sickness to cheerfulness and great days, it brings with it a powerful impact on that setting and all that's involved in that setting. Now he's going to use Elijah as the illustration for this. Go back to verse 16. Says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, I want, I want to highlight this two dynamics today. We'll move on to some other ones next week, but two dynamics that prayer alters or prayer changes. One would be the person praying, and the other would be the way we pray. I want to make clear this because in my experience, as well as I think these passages, it, it's not just reading about prayer that changes the one who prays. Nor is it reading about prayer that changes the way we pray. There's a place for help in those categories. And I appreciate the help that I've received from others who have written and helped me to pursue God in prayer. But there's something about praying itself that changes me when I pray. And that changes the way I pray. 
And so I just can't read about it. I, and I say that to those of you who are anything like me. I find reading about prayer much easier than praying. Anybody else in the room like that? I'd be embarrassed to tell you how many books on prayer I've read. <laughs> but praying is a different animal. But it's in that moment, in the presence of God, speaking to God and letting things bounce off of God and off your heart and it comes back to you a certain way and you're interacting with God and you're in the presence of God in prayer, nothing will change you like prayer will change you and nothing will change the way you pray like praying. So I think it's very important that we start where the Bible starts. And look at, look at what it says here. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, he's going to jump into a character here and help us to see that. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. <laughs> That's big. Right? right? This is, you want to talk about shutting the economy down? One dude, one guy shut the economy down for everybody. Three and a half years, no rain. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. This is a powerful moment. Now it's interesting that when James, of all the places he can go and he's trying to convince us, prayer has power and he pulls from the archives a story about Elijah. Now Elijah would have been, uh, for a Jew, would have been a superhero. Elijah would have been, probably he probably wore a cape. Had a big E on his chest. Elijah is an incredible individual. Uh, Elijah is about, if you want to find him in history, he's an Old Testament prophet. He's about 100 years after King David, about 100 years before Isaiah the prophet. So here he is. He doesn't get to write his own book. He gets included in uh, the kings and the reports of what happened during that era. But he's an incredible guy. If you checked his resume, not only did he shut the economy down and shut the water off for three and a half years, but he raised people from the dead. So this guy's not slack. When you read his resume, it's, it's an impressive resume. But what's amazing is what James has to tell us about Elijah. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed. Okay, now that's, I'm reading into that verse. I don't know if that's the way James said it. But he is making a point here. Because for him to say, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I don't know how Elijah feels about that, but he didn't know me, but he ought to be insulted. <laughs> Right, uh, I'm sure he'd like to say, hey, I'm nothing like that guy. Uh, but James wants to make clear, I understand, before you put a cape on Elijah and make him fly around the room and pray like a giant, he was a man just like you and me, with passions and emotions and feelings and thoughts just like you and me. Now, now make Elijah a real man for a moment, right? A nature probably prone to fear and anxiety. If you read Elijah's story, he was. The Bible comes right out and says that about him. He was afraid. There were seasons in his life where he had to inject prayer in the moments where he was afraid about what was happening and anxious for the future. A nature prone to unbelief. Is your nature prone to unbelief? My nature is prone to unbelief. Listen, boy, if there's anything that I, I feel like I probably battle with. It's the tendency to just give yourself to believe in the wrong thing. Just give yourself, you know, vain imaginations and just traveling down that road and thinking this is going to happen and that's going to happen and that's going to happen. 
Jesus when he dealt with people upon earth. You know, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? <laughs> you know, they bring the, the, the boy who's demon-possessed to Jesus because his disciples couldn't do anything about it. Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how long will I be with you? Listen, these are the guys hanging out with Jesus. They got people with better resumes than me running around having a problem with unbelief. Elijah had some problems with unbelief. Probably prone to laziness. I'm sure, I'm sure Eliza had, he had issues in all kinds of categories because he had a nature like ours. Right? Like if you just look back, you don't have to turn with me here. Just, just listen for a second. In 1 Kings where we find this encounter, the story of Elijah gets told pretty quickly. And after, after this incredible venture of Elijah, I mean, he shut the water off for three and a half years. He's raised the dead. He's challenged the prophets of Baal to a showdown on the side of a mountain, beat them, shut them out, embarrass them. And then the king's wife decides to threaten Elijah. Now you think, you know, this guy's got six shooters strapped to his sides. He walks like John Wayne, right? He's going to tell Jezebel, don't make me pull my prayer gun out on you. <laughs> no, 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 not our Elijah. He looks more like me in this moment. Chapter 19, it says, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down. I guess he didn't mind if his servant got killed, but he wanted to get a little further away from this deal. And came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Okay, now, I don't know where your vain imaginations go. This is a man who is about to venture into his prayer closet, wrestling with vain imaginations. Do you ever have to do that? He's thinking, it'd be better off if I was just dead. God, just take my life right here. It just needs to end, God, because what's about to happen is so bad. My life just needs to end. Now listen, that's a nature like ours. You ever feel that way? I'm sure that there's some here today who this past week... You're thinking, my, my life has gotten so complicated, so bad, so difficult. I don't have any answers. I don't know what's going to happen next. I, I, just, I just wish I was dead and this whole thing was over with. That's our Elijah. But yet he's a man who's going to pray. He's going to pray. Into that season, Elijah is going to pray. Now, what's amazing here, I don't know if God laughs in these moments. You know, I know it feels like it would be cruel for God to laugh in these moments. You know, he's, he's saying, just, just take my life, God, just end it. Now, remember, Elijah would be in the unique category of one other guy who would be the only guy who's not going to die. Right? Elijah's going to be taken out of here on a chariot fire. But here he is in vain imagination. I'm going to die. Just kill me, God. I'm going to die. You think God's going, oh, man. Uh, did you check out Elijah? Oh, my goodness. He has no idea what we're about to do. But he's going to at least pursue God. And he begins to pray. Into that moment, he injects prayer. And he waits on God. And God shows up. 
and affects him. See, Elijah wasn't born a mighty man of prayer. Elijah had to battle through issues to become a man of prayer. So if you've got issues that are keeping you out of your prayer closet, well, join hands with people who raise the dead. You shut down the rain for three and a half years. But yet Elijah is a man of prayer. Look at this quote. Elijah is presented to us in 1 Kings 17 and 19 as the man of prayer. In chapter 17, we read of the secret years of Elijah's apprenticeship. Through this, Elijah was confirmed regarding the power of prayer. Even in the face of death, he learned the mighty inherent power of prayer is effective, both to restore the physically dead and to give life to the spiritually dead. Now, he can be sure that the Lord hearkened to the voice of Elijah. In prayer, listen to this, in prayer, a mere man can move God. Elijah is a changed man, and I think that change is critical for us. Look at this thought I wrote out in your outline. One of the things that seems most necessary for prayer to act as a catalyst on is us, the ones praying. We want prayer to change all kinds of things. Listen, before prayer is going to change all kinds of things, prayer needs to change me into a man who will pray. If prayer must change anything, it must change us, lest we never pray or never learn to pray effectively. I think prayer is something you learn. It is something we learn to do. It is something we grow in. And it's something that as we do it, what an effect it has on our lives. It's praying that brings about an effect on our lives. And you see that all throughout Scripture. You you, you see Jacob. Just before he's going to meet his brother Esau, and remember Jacob, his name means trickster, supplanter. He stole his brother's birthright. All the wealth that went along with it, and all the promises that went along with it, and now he's got to face his brother. And he's sure. And this is years later, he's thinking, my brother is so bitter. He is so angry. So he is scared to death. He's devising strategies on how how we can approach him, how we can divide up people. He's scared. And the night before, he has a meeting with God. Remember the night Jacob wrestled with God? See, the Bible uses terminologies about prayer that don't look like the way in which we pray. This is why I think we've got a lot of learning to do about effective prayer. Wrestling is a common word to describe prayer. It's common. And so this night, Jacob wrestles with God. Throughout the night, remember, and it's, it's getting into the dawn of the morning. And the Lord says, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go. I will not. I bet there's, a, there's a lesson in prayer right there. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Let me ask you a question here. Is it tweak your theological brain? What if he just had wrestled for five five minutes or maybe seven? He wrestled throughout the night. What if the angel had said, let me go? And Jacob would have said, all right, you're God. What do you want me to do, argue with you? He didn't, though. See, I don't know what would have been the case. All I know is into this moment, he's praying, fervently praying, wrestling with God praying. And in that moment, God changes this man. Remember, and there's, a, there's a symbol of his change and that his, his hip is put out of socket and he walked for the rest of his life with a limp and his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. No longer 
are you known as Jacob the trickster, the supplanter? You are a different man. You have wrestled with God and prevailed. Your name will be Israel. See, in those days, they named people for reasons. Their names had meaning. God says, you are not the same man anymore. What happened? It was a man who prayed, who encountered God in a way that changed who he was. You see this in David. This is a fun glimpse. Look in Psalm 6, if you can turn quickly in your Bible. Psalm 6. It's a very short psalm. is a picture of David's prayer life in the midst of a season of great concern. Right now, I know, listen, in the most threatening of situations, all we want to do is have vain after imagination after vain imagination. When we don't feel good, when we're outnumbered, things aren't going right, we don't want to pray. We might not mind singing a song when things are going great, but we don't want to pray when it's going difficult. But this, listen to the way in which David prays. Psalm 6, verse 1. Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Are any among you languishing? Let them pray. That's what he's doing. Are any among you? He's suffering. His suffering is a form of languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there's no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Now listen, I believe this is a description of David's prayer life. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Now listen, this is a description of prayer. David's describing his prayer life. He says that there's, a, there's a prayer aspect that goes so deep into us that the only sound that's coming out of you are the tears that are coming out of you. And every one of them is a word saying something to God because you're carrying something inside of you with such a weight that you are wrestling over these issues. This man's sweating and crying, travailing before God in prayer. Now watch what he says next. The Lord has heard my plea. Okay, we, we, we don't get play by play. And how long did it take for him to write this psalm? You write parts of it and come back to it. You write it all at once. Not clear. But at some point, he's going to turn in this encounter with God and say, The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is a different man than the one who was languishing in the beginning. What made the difference? Prayer made the difference. He prayed and he poured himself out before God in such a way that over time, it was the presence of God in prayer that changed who he was. And his whole perspective changes. Listen, you you even find this is true of the Son of God on earth. Remember, Jesus begins his ministry. Boy, if there's anybody who didn't need to pray, it's the Son of God. Isn't it? It's the Son of God. He's fresh from heaven. (laughs) 
He's lived for all eternity. He's got a grasp on the purposes of God. He knows where things are going. If anybody doesn't need to pray or have a prayer life, it's the Son of God. But yet he inaugurates his ministry upon the earth with 40 days alone praying. And he concludes his ministry upon the earth, wrestling with God in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer. See, into every moment, launching and finishing. And and of course, Jesus' life was filled with getting away and praying early and late and getting by himself. If anybody didn't need to pray, it would be the Son of God. But yet the pattern of his life was he prayed all over the place. He held it in high regard. And, And there was a dynamic of prayer affecting him. Remember, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know what the Son of God looked like in this moment. But I bet it was troubling to see him this way. Dressed in humanity, the God of the universe is going to say things like, My soul is very sorrowful to the point of death. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Mark says it a little bit more strongly. Father, remove the cup. Now, I don't know what's going on in this moment. And theologically, honestly, I can't quite get my mind around it. Because here is God who knows nothing of weakness. But he's looking like this is quite a moment right here. Now, Now, later, right? I mean, he's praying and he's done what James says. He's asked others to pray as well. He believes he needs to pray, but others need to be praying as well. Remember, he comes back and visits them throughout the night to make sure they're praying. Obviously, he thought it was important not only that he's praying, but that they're praying as well. And, of course, they're falling asleep. He goes off and prays again. Something happens. He goes from, I need to get alone. And and the look of all of humanity's sin is about to be placed on him. And he's got to get alone. And he goes off and gets alone. At some point, he's going to come back with a little bit different of a skip in his step. And he's going to say, you're still sleeping? Get up, guys. Time to go. Game on. What happened? He's been praying. Do you remember the images of him in prayer in Gethsemane? They, They sound a little bit like the images that David talked about in prayer. Tears and sweat and wrestling with God. Luke chapter 22 says, an angel appeared strengthening him. In prayer, the Son of God received strength for what was about to happen in his life. Now listen, does that ring like a need in any of our lives? We face things sometimes and we want to be adequate for the task, but I don't think we realize, how do you get adequate for this thing that's about to come into your life? You inject prayer into that thing. You get with God and you get something in prayer. You get affected by God. God brought strength to the Son of God. Boy, if there's anybody who didn't need strength, it had to have been Christ. I desperately need strength. He was strengthened by an angel. The Bible describes his prayer this way. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like drops of blood. Do you have a picture here? This is prayer. This is what the Bible calls prayer. This is why in the beginning I had to suppress laughter from the Gallup poll information. (laughs) 
More people will pray this week than drive a car, go to work, etc., etc. Really? I'm not sure what we're doing is what's going on here. See, this is prayer in another league. This is prayer that James, want to go back to James now? That James is describing as effectual and fervent prayer. See, first, prayer changes the one who prays, but prayer changes the way we pray. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a man who was changed by the prayer life he had so that he prayed incredibly in the midst of adversity and difficulty. He prayed fervently. He prayed fervently. J.C. Ryle says, It is the effectual fervent prayer that availeth much. And not the cold, sleepy, lazy, listless one. This is the lesson that is taught us by the expressions used in Scripture about prayer. It is called crying, knocking, wrestling, laboring, striving. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan pastor, said, Look, as a painted man, look, as a painted man is no man, and a painted fire is no fire. So a cold prayer is no prayer. Such prayers never went upon the heart of God that, that do not first warm our own hearts. As a body without a soul, much wood without a fire, a bullet and a gun without powder, so are all prayer without fervency of spirit. Lazy prayers never procure noble answers. Matt, go ahead and come up here. Ken Hughes says he prayed earnestly, is literally, in prayer he prayed. It's, it's a Hebrew idiom for intensity or passion. Elijah's prayer was not a laid-back request. God, it would be nice if it would not rain. Rather, he passionately poured out his heart to heaven. In prayer, he prayed. In prayer, he prayed. Okay, now there's a, this is a great little set of words for us because sometimes what we are calling prayer is the setting that needs to turn into prayer. Can I say it that way? We prayed, but that prayer needed to turn into prayer when we went and prayed. It wasn't yet prayer. It was on its way to being prayer. It needed to be more than that. You've heard the terminologies, you know, they, they prayed through. The Puritans used to have a phrase like that. Pray until you pray. It almost sounds... But, you know, if you've prayed, if you've been a Christian for very long, you know the difference, don't you? You know the moment when you've prayed until you've prayed. And that's a little different than some casual, let me just voice something before God, let me just say something off the top of my head, just fit something in, a little five-minute ditty here or there. There's a realm of prayer that... That must be injected into the Christian life. It's almost like, you know, don't try and do life without it. God didn't intend it to be done without it. He has made it too vital and important for it to be part of our lives. It is, it is challenging, yes. But we need grace from God to meet that challenge. Because it's got to happen. It's got to happen. It cannot be an optional element. 
We cannot think the universe is running itself. God has invited prayer into his management of our lives in a way that I don't understand. But I'm not called to understand it to that level. I'm called to understand it to the level that I'm obedient and trusting in God. Now, let me, let me draw this to a close for the sake of our mothers this morning. Moms, in just a moment, I'm going to want you to, to stand up and to let us pray for you today. You know, as I thought through, what, what, what can we do special for the moms? I don't know at this point in my life where I could think of anything more special than this message for you. I don't, I don't know of anything of greater value and importance for you and for the ministry that you're called to and the effect that you're called to have on others and the weight and the enormity of it and the moments in your life where, I don't know whether you want to sit under a tree like Elijah and just say, God, just kill me. <laughs> just kill me before my husband gets home. Just kill me today. Um, into that moment, there needs to be prayer as a catalyst injected that has an effect on you. It has to affect you. It has to affect the way in which you pray. Let me put the rest of this quote up. You're going to take home a piece of this quote from S.D. Gordon. Here's the rest of the quote. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. We think we can do more where we are through our service than prayer to give power to our service. No. With the blackest underscoring of emphasis, let it be said, no. We can do nothing of real power until we have done the prayer thing. Here's a man by my side, and for you, it's a little boy or a little girl or grown adults that are your children. By my side, I can talk to him until I'm blue in the face, is what Gordon would have said had he been a mother. I can talk to him. I can bring my personality to bear upon him that I may win him. But before I can influence his will, a jot for God, I must first have won the victory in the secret place. Intercession is winning the victory over the chief and service is taking the field after the chief is driven off. There would be few quotes I have treasured more in my life than that one. Ladies, let me ask you mothers to stand this morning. All the, all the moms that are here, stand up. We're going we're gonna to pray for you this morning. I trust the Holy Spirit to divinely impart grace to your soul in this category. And ladies, I want to I just ask you to, to open your heart, maybe in a way that for some of you who are your very nurturing and caring mothers, your very responsible 
mothers. You know at the beginning of the day what needs to be done. Your task list is before you and you are perhaps well organized approaching it. It's important that you get these things done. What we want you to take home with you is is a little frame that you can stick on your nightstand, put it on your vanity, put it in the bathroom, put it on the kitchen window where you wash your dishes. Put it somewhere where this priority cannot escape. It cannot escape. You can do many things after you have prayed. But you've got to do this. Now listen, I know, I know daily it's tempting to devote 100% of your energy and your time and your effort to those duties that never go away. Cooking, cleaning, chauffeuring. Those are the big three C's of mom. <laughs> Instructing your children. Disciplining them. Dealing with the issues that are in their hearts. And dealing with the sin that's prolifically coming out of their lives. And it's tempting to take 100% of who you are and get about what I would call direct influence activities. I want to I directly put my hands on these things. I, I need to go to that. I need to be the, at the epicenter of the source. Can, can you get a vision for the most powerful thing you're going to do in that moment is to turn yourself away from it. <clears throat> get before God. And begin like David and like Jesus to pray and intercede and let God begin to not only affect you, but affect the way you pray and affect what we'll talk about next week to affect that thing that you're so eager to fix with your words or your influence. Listen, that doesn't mean that you won't have something to say. (laughs) I think it's impossible for a mother not to have something to say in that moment. But there's something more powerful than what you have to say. There's something more effective than what you're going to do. Listen, I'll tell you this as a husband, as one who lives in a household where there's a lot of mothering going on. It it would be better off for your family for there to be fervent prayer going on in your life. And some of us are missing a meal from time to time. Or the laundry didn't quite get done. Or the house isn't quite as together. But yet we know it's because mom's been praying. That would be more important, ladies. That would be more important at the end of your life. For you to have known, I commune with God over my family. I commune with God. I sought God. I trusted God. I prayed. I entrusted them to him. I wrestled, I shed tears, I felt like I had drops of blood coming out of me because I prayed fervently as God called me to. And this morning, can you, can you just receive the simplicity of James? Those prayers avail much. They have an impact when you inject prayer into your children's lives into their needs, into their sin, into their waywardness, into their trouble. You inject a catalyst that brings about a change in their life. Now, in just a moment, we're going to pray for all of our moms here. I I wanted to highlight something here that I find curious. For those of you moms 
who would have wayward children here today. I find it interesting in this loaded, probably the most concentrated use of the word prayer in all of the Bible, in this short passage, nine times prayer just got talked about. And then the next passage says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. How many of us have read that passage and says, that means I've got to go to him. I've got to run after this guy and say something to him. It probably does mean that. But you know what I'm absolutely sure about? It follows the most concentrated teaching on prayer that's in the Bible. It just got to talk about praying the prayer of faith. And there would be wanderers in our midst, mothers. And you have a ministry into their life who have wandered. On your knees, that's more powerful and effective in their life than anything that you could say without having prayed. And let me ask those who are around the moms here this morning if they could gather around. Let's, let's pray for mothers this morning. Pray for the grace of God, the power of God to come into their lives. Maybe some moms that would be here this morning perhaps don't have family with them. Let's make sure that we are going over to those moms and praying for them as well. If you see a mom that's standing that doesn't have somebody praying with them right now. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for the way in which you impart something to us. We hear it when Jacob has wrestled and something then happens to him. He is altered by you touching him. He is different. Not only is he physically different, but his name is different because his life will now be different. Well, we see it when David is wrestled and languished and cried and mourned and cried out to you. You did something in that moment because what was tangible to him at first was his grief and his fear. And at the end, he is warning his enemies to look out. You did something to him. Even the Son of God wrestling in the garden of Gethsemane. And strength is brought to him to where what was once an incredible weight, now he picks up in Herculean strength that he's received and says, let's go. Lord, would you do that for these moms this morning? God, they would feel the weight. They would look into their child's futures, Lord. And some of them would want to crawl into a closet afraid, feeling the burden for the future of these lives. But some of them this morning would be here worn out by the battles that go on on a daily basis of fighting against the presence of sin in this one or that one. Some of them would be under the weight of fears and the voice of fear that has informed them as their child has moved away from home into a life full of destruction. And report after report is only all the more discouraging. 
Lord, it is into these moments your divine revelation from James has come. Are any of you in these conditions? Let them pray. Let them pray. Let them call for others to pray. Let there be prayer. Lord, we pray this morning for grace from heaven. Holy Spirit enabled times of prayer for these ladies in our midst who carry lives in a way that no one else does and no one else could. God, would you inject into their soul a longing for prayer that causes them, causes them, Lord. Remember your word said, you would give us your spirit and you would cause us to walk. God, would you cause these ladies to walk divinely empowered, underneath aprons pulled over their heads, climbing into closets, getting alone, being mysteriously missing from moments because, God, they're with you. They're with you and they're calling down heaven. And God, you are bringing power and influence into their own soul. You are changing them. You're changing the way they pray. They go from fear into faith. They go from challenge and adversity into triumph. And knowing that God will, God will answer these prayers. God, bring about the prayer of faith in the lives of our mothers in this place today. God, change them. Change them, God. And change the way they pray. God, may it be that the future of this church is altered for years and years to come on the backs of mothers who prayed for the generation that's coming. They prayed in faith. Because, God, this morning we choose to believe the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous accomplishes much, God. Much is going to be done by these ladies praying. That's why. That's why they pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.